The world of agriculture technology is vast and constantly evolving, with new innovations and companies emerging at a rapid pace. At AgTech Media Group, we understand the importance of staying updated and connected in this dynamic industry, and that's why we're thrilled to announce the launch of our new AgTech Company Directory, a comprehensive and user-friendly resource designed to help you navigate the complex landscape of AgTech innovators. More than just a list, it's a curated collection of companies leading the charge in transforming the AgTech sector from startups pioneering new farming methods to established companies adopting cutting-edge technologies. Our directory spans a wide range of leaders dedicated to advancing agriculture through technology. Whether you're a farmer looking for the latest in crop monitoring tools, an investor seeking promising ag tech startups, or a researcher interested in sustainable farming practices, ag tech directory is designed to cater to your specific needs. You can filter by sector, technology, size, or location to find exactly what you're looking for. To learn more and to claim your company listing, visit agtechcompanies.com. Special thanks to our title sponsor this season, IGS. Founded in 2013, IGS develops industry 4.0 solutions in the global ag tech and commercial lighting markets. As an industry innovator, they make revolutionary controlled environment growth products. For more information, visit intelligentgrowthsolutions.com. If you can identify what your passion is and you can use that to fuel your career, that means that work is something that you feel passionate about. Welcome to the Vertical Farming Podcast, weekly conversations with fascinating CEOs, founders, and ag tech visionaries. Join us every week as we dive deep into the world of vertical farming with your host, Harry Duran. Vertical Farming Podcast, welcome back. Episode 8. If you're new to the show, this is the podcast where we interview fascinating CEOs and founders of some of the leading vertical farming companies from around the world. In case you missed last week's episode, I had a great conversation with Nicola Kurzlaki of Contain. They're doing great things in the world of financing for companies in the ag tech and vertical farming space. It's a really entertaining and lively conversation. Make sure you check that out, episode 7. This week, I'd also like to call out a special announcement from our friends at Agritecture. Last year, with their partner Autogrow, they conducted the first ever global census on controlled environment agriculture and published a 52-page report, free of charge, with over 300 respondents from 54 countries. For the 2020 global CEA census, they aim to reach even more farm operators to gain an increasingly accurate picture of the industry. With COVID-19 heavily impacting agriculture, they'd be interested to know how it has affected your operations. You can fill it out at agritecture.com forward slash census. We'll also be including a link to that in our show notes as well. And they've asked that the questionnaire be completed by August 10th, 2020. What's more, by answering this year's census, you'll have a chance to win multiple prizes, including a free ticket to their virtual conference, Agritecture Exchange. So make sure you check that out. This week, I have the privilege of speaking with Virginia Emery of Beta Hatch. I really enjoyed the energy and the vibe of this conversation. She's an entrepreneur with a passion for insects. And if you haven't heard of Beta Hatch, it's a company that grows insects as sustainable protein for animal feed. Virginia's current mission is to save the world by breeding a bug that tastes like bacon. <laughs> we discussed the fascinating world of insect farming, its impact on the vertical farming industry, and the importance of promoting diversity in this ever-growing market. We get deep in this conversation and Virginia breaks down the supply chain aspect of Beta Hatch and the impact of robotics technology on this industry and how she's grown and involved as a business owner and entrepreneur. She shares her thoughts and opportunities for women and minorities in the ag tech industry and what can be done to promote diversity. She also talks through the decision to seek out funding through a third-party investor and a hard question she's had to ask herself and answer recently. 
If you enjoyed this episode or past episodes, I'd love for you to leave a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP. Okay, let's get to it and jump into this conversation with Virginia. So Virginia Emery, founder of Beta Hatch, thank you for joining us on the Vertical Farming Podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me. I was doing a little bit of homework and I listened to your interview with the folks at Modern Acre. Mm Mm-hmm. So I wanted to start and have you tell the listeners and me and explain what a bug banquet is. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, so it's interesting. I've been to quite a few of these bug banquets. Generally, it's a celebration of insect-based cuisine. So I've had several different chefs prepare amazing meals. The most recent one that I got to enjoy was in uh, Copenhagen at the annual meeting of the International Platform for Insects as Food and Feed, uh, an international sort of trade organization. And yeah, the the bug banquet usually incorporates a multitude of species of insects in different ways, different preparations. So I've had salad topped with black ants. I've had polenta made with cricket powder. I've had mealworms on top of soup. I've had all kinds of different interesting, both savory and sweet preparations of insects. And I find it very exciting when we can get a diversity, you know, different types of insects that are not not as common, different wasps and different non-insects as well, uh, arachnids. So I know that the Explorers Club had a, a really big banquet a few years ago. They had fried tarantulas as one of the dishes. So there's a, a lot of different exciting preparations of insects that we don't enjoy as much here in North America. There are some traditional North American dishes, of course, but around the world, there's a history of eating insects. So it's just a celebration of that cuisine. Has your palate expanded to the point where you can actually notice the difference between the different types of insects? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and it doesn't require you know a palate expansion. It's just the nature of a lot of these bugs. Ants are a good example where the defensive chemicals that they use to defend their nests imbue different flavors. So you can have ants that taste like blue cheese or that have a lemony flavor. It just depends on the kinds of protective chemicals that they use. When did this interest start for you in insects specifically? Well, I've been a biologist my whole life. So as a little kid, I I just loved being outside, being in nature. I'm sure I collected my fair share of crawling insects and worms and different things living in the dirt. But my, my real passion started in college where I think just realizing how sophisticated and complex the insect realm is, is when I really fell in love. So it's been, you know, several decades now of just being interested in insects and my whole career I've worked with insects. So it's been a a real passion and and I think will be a a theme of my life for sure. Were science and biology early subjects that were the most interesting to you growing up? I think so. Yeah, I always had a a set of great teachers. I had a really fantastic high school biology teacher. My father is a scientist as well. He's a geophysicist, but I was never very interested in rocks. I I needed something that was a little bit more alive. So biology, you know, we're living things. and, And I have a lot of friends who are doctors, medical doctors, and certainly the human body and human beings are very interesting, but there are millions of other species on the planet. And so that's where I you know, have always been really fascinated by nature and and the living things in it. When did the interest in business start? Because you're now the founder of your own business. And I'm wondering, as you move out of academia and being a biologist, when, when that started to come into being? Yeah, I think it was probably in grad school. My partner, who I met in in San Francisco when I was doing my 
PhD work at UC Berkeley. He's a very entrepreneurial person and kind of started sparking some of that interest. I definitely started to feel like a lot of the work I was doing in academia wasn't very helpful, wasn't very applicable to making real change in the world. You know, you could really get deep into some really basic questions of biology and create new knowledge, which is the incredible privilege of working in academia. But the actual impact that would have on the planet was potentially negligible. You could be doing amazing world-class research and it would never be something the public would hear about. It would never be something that would become commercial. So I started really thinking about how could I use my skills to actually do something that would have a, a more lasting and meaningful impact. And certainly I think, especially here in the US, starting a business is a great way to create the future that you want to see. And so I started exploring some opportunities while in grad school and my early work was in some smaller businesses and just trying to get a feeling for what it takes to to start something new, start a new enterprise. And I started Beta Hatch in 2015. Prior to Beta Hatch, did you ever have a nine to five job? I did. Yes. I did not like it very much. I, I think a lot of founders have a personality that sort of lends itself to independence. And that's something that I think is true of me as well. I just, I really wanted to be more creative and really own what I was working on in a different way. So I think that really spurred me to start my own business. You mentioned something that I thought was interesting, this interest in changing the world. When, where did that come from, that, that drive and, and who inspired that? Well, I had a, a great friend in high school who unfortunately passed away, but he was uh, in this firefighting program with me. And he was extremely passionate about firefighting. He knew from an early age, that's what he wanted to do. And he would frequently say that if you find a job you love, you'll never work a day in your life. And I think that is something that has stuck with me since then, that if you can identify what your passion is, and you can use that to fuel your career, that means that work is not work in a, a sense of something you're not enjoying or something that's burdensome, but rather something that you feel passionate about. And I, I think that's something that I wish for all people is that they can find something that they feel passionate about and pursue it. As you started delving into the world of insect farming and the world of indoor agriculture, what were you doing to educate yourself about the industry and, and where were you looking to learn more? There are some great organizations associated with the UN. So the UN Food and Agriculture Organization published a report, very widely read, one of their most published and, and read reports on the use of insects in food and feed of, of edible insects. And that uh, was published in, I believe, 2013. That sort of sparked a revolution, I think, in the industry and started to really put a lot of fuel behind what we're doing. I think before that, there's a huge, long history of edible insects, you know, millennia of eating insects and several decades of uh, producing and thinking about insects for food. But not at the kind of scale that we're talking about now. I think there's really been in the last few years, a huge increase in the volume of production. I think also a real diversification of how we're thinking about applications of insects and, and their their potential. You know, the industry has evolved from something that's been really steeped in tradition and <clears throat> collection from nature. And it's, I think, evolved now into thinking about this as really part of the food system in a way that we're actually intentionally producing insects and growing them for food and for animal feed. So can you provide a bit of context 
in terms of the business model for Business Hatch and specifically how you're looking at insects as opposed to a source for human consumption where you went with Beta Hatch? Yeah, so Beta Hatch is very focused on producing insects for animal feed. When we think about the food system, we all, many of us, like to enjoy meat and we don't really think about what it is that our meat is eating. And what most people don't realize is a third of all the crops that we grow are going to feed animals. And so there's a huge industry around animal feed, $400 billion globally, that most people don't think about, that has huge ripple effect into other parts of the food supply. I think a lot of people have this sort of ick factor, you know, that bugs are gross, they shouldn't be in our food. But when you think about what it is that animals are eating in the wild, they're eating insects. And we don't have to convince fish or chickens that bugs are delicious. So we are focused on producing insects as a feed ingredient for those animals. It's a high protein, high fat feed ingredient. So it's replacing some of the most expensive ingredients in the diet. And it's providing some of that essential nutrition that can sometimes limit growth and productivity. Insects also have these other incredible functions as prebiotics. So they can enhance digestive health of those animals They can replace antibiotics because a lot of insects produce antimicrobial peptides. There's all of these different micronutrients that they can provide the animals that we're feeding. And so there's huge value for insects as part of that animal food production system. And it's not just about producing meat. It's also about creating healthful and hypoallergenic diets for companion animals, for dogs and cats, for exotic animals at zoos. There's a lot of other applications of insects in the feed system as well. Yeah, I always thought it was interesting when you would see uh, eggs that says uh, vegetarian fed chickens. (laughs) And I was like, wait a minute, because you normally, if you see a chicken outside of a a chicken coop, they're just pecking away, like eating up the grubs and the the worms. Yeah, yeah, that's actually one of our customers that we've we've spoken with here in Washington said that they removed that from their packaging because they had enough customers calling and saying, aren't chickens supposed to eat bugs that that would make them... (laughs) Technically, you know, this plant-based diet is not natural for them. Um, and so I think that intuitively we know that this is something that we need in our food system. I think people forget when you look at chickens, they're, they're basically like baby dinosaurs. Yes, they are. <laughs> like like in, terms of, in terms of some of like their characteristics. And if you look at Jurassic Park and you're like, oh, that's just a huge chicken. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much. Yep. And they love to eat bugs. Yeah. What were some of the surprises as you started working through this business model and things that you had to learn on the fly as you started to grow this? So, yeah, I've I've been producing insects for five years with Beta Hatch. We've grown in scale, but it's still a very small business in the scale of the market. A lot of the customers that we're trying to work with just can't write contracts with us because we don't have the volume of production that they need. And I think that the scale of the need for these alternative proteins is probably the single, I don't want to say most surprising thing, but the the most challenging thing for the industry. It's a very supply limited industry right now where the demand far exceeds what the supply is globally. This isn't just for our company, but for the entire industry. So I think that there's a bit of a chicken egg problem or uh, rather a be- beetle egg problem. I have to work on replacing that uh, that phrase to be more appropriate for us. So the beetle egg problem is that a lot of the customers want a very large volume to make commitments to purchase, but we need to get their commitments and their interests in order to secure the funding and the other elements of you know just building that business to get to the scale that is meaningful for them. So 
the customer wants the volume to already exist. We need the customer's commitment in order to scale to that volume. So we're working with a lot of smaller producers and customers and doing rollouts with large companies on niche products as the industry is scaling. And I'm very excited that in the next few years, I think we're going to start seeing a much broader adoption of insects as part of these feed formulations that are used for our animals. What's the percentage of interest and demand U.S. versus global? That's a great question. I think a lot of it has to do more with awareness of insects right now. So the industry's grown more quickly in Asia and in Europe than it has in the United States. Beta Hatch is one of the largest producers of mealworms in the industry, but we're still extremely small. We're the largest producer in, in North America of mealworms for commercial animal feed. And again, still at a, a fairly small scale, but that demand is huge. And I think it partly has to do with the structure of the feed industry. A lot of aquaculture feed, for example, is produced in Europe by nature of just where the fishing industry exists. And I think that we're going to start seeing some shifts in that industry as insect protein production opens up new geographies, because we basically can decouple, for example, fish food production from the ocean. So we can be producing that now on land in insect farming facilities. And so we have an opportunity to really establish new business, especially here in the U.S. The U.S. is a net exporter of feed because we produce a lot of soy, but we're a net importer of aquaculture and seafood and aquafeed products. So there's some interesting geographical components to the food system that, again, most people are not realizing when they go to the grocery store and get their food. And so I think I'm very excited to see the opportunities that insect farming can open up in helping to create more domestic production and more robust supply chains. Who was the inspiration for you in terms of other businesses doing what you're doing, either at a smaller or larger scale as you were getting started? Yeah, we definitely look to other livestock production, other animal production systems. There's some really successful models for working with contracted farmers. I think there's a lot of flaws in some of those contracts where the farmer is not given a great share of the profits from that production. So we're really trying to think about how can we create a really good revenue generating opportunity, a job creation opportunity for farmers by enabling them to, instead of producing you know, poultry or, or pigs, produce insects. So I think that there's some interesting opportunities, not just for established farmers, but starting to think about models that can be applied in urban environments. So if you have a warehouse and it's just sitting idle and empty, you could convert that into a bug farming factory and start producing sustainable alternative proteins. I think that there's a lot of really interesting business model innovation that is going to be required for us to solve a lot of the challenges in the supply chain with food. How much of what you're doing lends itself to exactly what you're describing, like educating new entrepreneurs who want to get into this field and, you know, similar to the container farm market where you, you show people and, and, you know, what the folks like Freight Farm are, are, and Square Roots are doing, giving people like an out-of-the-box solution for this is how you can hit the ground running with a business model that's been proven and has a bit of a track record. How much of what you're doing lends itself to that and is, is something that you're interested in? Yeah, I think that Freight Farms and some of these other container-based companies are, are have a really interesting business model. We're looking at a, a much larger scale still small in the scheme of production, but, and I shouldn't say small, it's a medium commercial scale, but this is definitely a much more significant commitment than buying a container farm. Our 
scale of operation that we're targeting is around 30,000 square feet. So it's a large facility that can produce several tons of product every day. So it's a, it's a very much a manufacturing operation, but there are plenty of entrepreneurs, plenty of different farmers that have the capacity to to run such an operation very well. So we're excited to, again, talk to existing farmers who are looking to convert some production that they have, but also new producers that might have a facility or some interest in this kind of area, but may not have that experience. I think we're definitely trying to think about how we can expand our supply chain as quickly as possible. And we think this more distributed approach is a way that we can be successful there. Can you talk a little bit about the supply chain? Because I'm just curious what that looks like, what, like where the process starts and, and how, you know, maybe even a bit of a day in the life of <laughs> when, you, when, you, when you think of like the whole supply chain, like where the actual process starts, maybe even as, as an idea and, and where you start to look and then how it ends up in, in the hands of the farmers. Yeah, so we produce the mealworm. It's a type of beetle. It's a dry adapted insect. So it has been living with us for millennia in our stored grains. So their main feed is a dry feedstock. So that really simplifies our process. We basically put the feed into a tray and we put the insects in there with them as starting off. They start as eggs and will hatch into little larvae. And so those will go into a tray and those trays get stacked into set on a pallet. So that's the basic growing unit. And then those pallets will go into a controlled growing environment. And over the course of several weeks, they'll basically convert all of that feed into their biomass and frass. Frass is your word of the day. Frass is insect manure. So bug poop. We have a saying at Beta Hatch that frass happens. And that frass is a fantastic organic fertilizer. And actually what we're starting to explore now is even using that frass as a feed ingredient as well. So they'll convert this feedstock, which is usually a very low value, high fiber, not very digestible into these really dense little bug bodies that are protein rich and lipid rich. And so it's a conversion of nutrients is, is what this process is. They're basically bioconversion units. And at the end of the growing cycle, we take them out of those grow rooms and we separate the mealworms from their frass and we remove the water usually from the mealworms to make for easier transport and to prepare that product for the feed customer. And we are an ingredient supplier. So we produce this raw ingredient and we work with feed formulators to combine that into a formulated diet. Because even though we do actually have a lot of evidence that, for example, salmonids can survive and not just survive, but thrive on a 100% mealworm diet, we do know that a lot of producers like to blend that ingredient with other nutrients, either for cost reasons or feed conversions or efficiencies. So it is, as a sole ingredient, extremely high performing, and in some cases isn't a complete nutrition for the animal. But we do know that most of our customers are blending it with other ingredients as a formulated feed. So that's sort of the production process. Our supply chain and how that works is that we're looking again to this distributed model where a rancher that is growing our insects would buy the eggs and the feed from us. They would do this process, grow the product up, um, and then we would buy back all of the frass and feed from them to be able to sell through our channels. So in this way, we remove all of the the need for that customer. So our rancher doesn't need to think about sales and marketing. They just need to worry about operating and running the farm. And that, you know, gives them some guaranteed revenue for their their work. It 
gives them a lot more certainty around the process because we're helping control the inputs and we control that process. And so this is the, the model that we're looking to expand and create hundreds, if not thousands of insect farms around the world. And so I think that's a, a model, again, that's still in early development, but we're very excited to see that grow over the next few years. Is any of that technology or any of those systems proprietary? Well, most of the work that we do in technology developments is around the life cycle of the beetle. So getting the eggs, that's where a lot of our technology lives. So Beta Hatch owns and operates the egg production facility, and that's where most of our technology lives. Certainly, there's some proprietary elements about what we do. We have a custom tray that's been optimized for production. There's huge amount of data and research that's gone into the development of our process. But naturally, working with a rancher, there's a little exposure there to of our technology. So we have to be thinking about that as we think about which part of the process we have outside party to do versus we do ourselves. So fortunately, you know, just feeding up the insects and helping them grow is a fairly straightforward process. And we've tried as much as possible to use off the shelf technology so that we can really accelerate how quickly we can scale these operations and we can maximize the flexibility in our equipment supply chain for how we get these facilities up and running. Have you looked at or what is the impact in terms of the advancement in robotics for this industry? I've had a fascinating discussion with David Farquhar of Intelligent Growth Solutions, and he was explaining how the different variables of humidity, temperature, and even the, the soil composition, how they can all be mixed and matched together to create different environments, LED lights and all this sort of stuff. So I'm wondering if some of that is making its way into some of the work that you're doing as well. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of refinements that is still to be done in how we produce. And a lot of it has to do with controlling that climate really well. One of the things, though, that I think is really important for anyone in the industry to remember is that automation needs to be cost justified. And I think there's a lot of hype around some of the automation. And there's a lot of reinventing the wheel which is just sort of unnecessary. So we're actually taking a lot of inspiration from the indoor farming industry for plants and using a lot of those technologies for what we do. So there are some unique things about insects, absolutely, but we're really trying to focus on what are those unique needs and not necessarily reinvent where we don't need to. Fortunately, the industry is developing enough now that there are producers of custom equipment and that have some solutions that are immediately applicable to us. But the insect sector generally is still still developing and a few years behind where the plant producing sector is. So that, we're really blazing a trail in, in a lot of different parts of that production. And certainly that big data you know, approach to how you really optimize production is something that we're, we're using and we have been using from day one as a team of really skilled technologists. We've been developing a huge infrastructure to be able to handle and manage a lot of that data because you have this opportunity to really learn about and refine that production. I mean, this is the exciting thing about developing a new crop. I mean, we've been growing lettuce for a very long time and you see that the gains that can be made in an indoor production system, think about a crop that has never really been produced at massive scale. The gains that we make sometimes on a daily basis, one day to the next, we can have huge doublings of productivity in some cases just by simple changes in our process. So we have had a really great track record of some big leaps and jumps in the productivity based on the innovations that we've been applying to the process and biology and the technology and equipment that we're using. 
do you sometimes stumble across those sometimes or are you like, oh yeah <laughs> you're trying to figure out all the different knobs you're turning and then one of them results in like a, a, a you know a doubling of your output yeah sometimes they, and, you, and then you scramble to figure out like what what changed there <laughs> yeah sometimes there's an accident that happens and it turns out to actually be a great natural experiment there's a lot sometimes that's on the negative side as well so like for example lately we've been really trying to understand metabolic heat and how that plays into the air handling systems so this is something that's unique to insects that's different from plants is that they will produce heat as they're growing and if they overheat that can be really detrimental to their growth and so one of the things we've found recently in setting up some of these experiments we are actually realizing that even a small exposure to some of those conditions can have effects weeks later so just really understanding sometimes you set up set up an experiment to test one thing and if you're not properly tracking all of these variables you don't know what the impact is of of that modification. So we're finding, we're learning that things that otherwise seem like they shouldn't have too much of an impact can have strong ripple effects. And that goes both in the positive and the negative direction. So lots of breakthroughs for sure in just doubling the density that we can grow them at or or some of these things that have happened in the last year, which are allowing us to exceed a lot of those technology targets and milestones that we've set for ourselves pretty quickly. Interesting. Changing gears slightly, how have you grown as a business owner since you started Beta Hatch? Yeah, I mean, the company started just off with me growing bugs in my backyard in 2015. We grew into a converted office space and then we built out our first warehouse project. And now we're building a, a pretty large flagship facility in Kashmir, Washington. So we've grown from sort of just myself in my backyard to a team of 14 and a 30,000 square foot flagship facility that's got a huge amount of automation and we're actually building out a lot of new custom equipment to enable the process at a massive scale. So incredible growth. Myself as a business owner, you know, it's been an interesting transition going from academia into entrepreneurship. I've had to really think about and learn how to communicate differently because it's a very different style of communication in business. I've learned everything from, you know, obviously all the nuts and bolts of growing bugs, but the nuts and bolts of, you know, your accounting and customer management and PR and, uh, you know, HR, yeah, all kinds of things. So, you know, as an entrepreneur, like that's one of the most exciting things I think about having a business is there's always something new to learn. And that's something that we really value at our company is we really work to hire lifelong learners. That's something that we try to emphasize as much as possible in our hiring and in the culture of the business. Yeah, it was some of the most interesting learnings for me because I moved out of my corporate world. I was in financial companies in the marketing department for almost 18 years. And so moving to becoming an entrepreneur, I always like to give the example of it's like Narnia when you go into the you know step into out of the wardrobe and you're, and you're just like in this world of like digital marketing and online marketing and you have to quickly learn and realize the things that you're not good at like for me it is accounting and like I'm like I avoid like the plague like uh, reconciling my books and stuff like that so I'm always interested to, to hear how people who are not naturally born entrepreneurs because I wasn't you know the people that had you know there's, there's the stories of the people that had the lemonade stand when they were like five years old and there's a lot of things that they don't teach you in school and that you have to learn on your own so I'm always interested in, in how new entrepreneurs manage that. Yeah. And I think this is something that we should really think about having as more of a part of the education system. You know, I think that there's a real problem of creating opportunities for 
people in the country in an equitable way. And one of the ways that we can work to level that playing field is helping young people gain skills in entrepreneurship and in science. I think that having a real comfort with numbers is something that is really needed for a lot of different jobs. And I think that that's an area that I was never, I was into math, but not, you know, as into math as I think I could have been if I had realized just how how many different ways you can apply it. I think you need to find a way to make it meaningful for people and to tie it back to something they care about. And so that's that's why I think entrepreneurship is a great way to teach how to be looking at these skills in a different way. I mean, if you're really passionate and excited about your business, you're going to learn how to do the accounting, even if you hate it, right? So I think that both at the sort of primary level, but also as we train, I have a a real passion for science education. And I think as we look to train the next generation of scientists, we need to be training them in how to communicate, how to think about, you know, the commercial applications of what they're doing, how to think about business as a career opportunity. So I think there's a lot of opportunity if we can be thinking about getting entrepreneurship and business skills into the education system. For people that have known you a long time, family and friends, are are they surprised where you've ended up <laughs> or not? No, not really. It's interesting. I am an oldest child, so I lend myself naturally to uh, this sort of negative word of bossiness. There's you know these negative implications for being bossy when you're a woman, especially. But I have always been bossy in my whole life. You know, this is these are just leadership traits that instead of encouraging it as, hey, you are a leader, people say you're bossy. And that is something that I I never really took issue with, which is fortunate. You know, I had some really supportive parents and teachers who never made me feel like that was something I needed to get rid of. But it is something, at least professionally, I've run into some issues around around that bossiness that instead of cultivating those leadership skills, you know, it can sometimes be framed in a negative way. So, you know, I really try to, when I'm thinking about mentoring younger people, encouraging those personality traits that have some real value. And I think that those leadership traits of being someone who has a vision and makes that happen, who tries to take charge, who is trying to be a a builder and a creator. Those are things that I've always had as part of my personality. And so I think even though it wasn't necessarily a logical progression from that science and academic focus that I had, I I don't think anyone's too surprised. I've always tried to, I've always pursued my interests with a real drive. And I think that naturally being an entrepreneur fits really well with that. We're having a discussion in June of 2020. So top of mind for everyone in this country is the topic of diversity. And I'm wondering, you as a female business owner, what you've seen and what the state of the ag tech industry is for female owners. And if you've, th- you've thought about that and, and you know how your position is obviously a shining example for women and, and minorities who might look to, to, to enter this market. Yeah, it's it's interesting. We're definitely at some very pivotal times in the development of our country here. We have some real systematic issues around how women and people of color are not given the same kinds of opportunities as, you know, cis hetero white men. And so I think that there's the entire country has been grappling with this for a long time, but it's it's all kind of coming to a head now where we're we're recognizing that these are not just questions of economic opportunity, but even of public health, especially, and we're also in the middle of this pandemic. And 
it's disproportionately impacting you know, both from a direct health impact standpoint, but also from a career standpoint, you know, childcare is disproportionately falling on women who are having to take steps back in their careers because of the situation that we're in. So I think that, you know, as a ag tech entrepreneur, as someone who's very fortunate to have a lot of privilege and opportunity in my life, I think I, I definitely count myself very lucky. But at the same time, I do get a little frustrated seeing the lack of financing for women-led and minority-led businesses. You know, there's a huge problem in venture capital where there's a very large gap in funding. And I think that there's some excellent data on this. The uh, organization Egg Funder published a report on female-based companies and how much funding that they've received. And Ag tech does better than, for example, software. So the traditional Silicon Valley businesses are some of the worst when it comes to looking at that ratio and proportion of funding, but we're still lagging. And there are some investors who've really taken the lead on this. S2G is an example of an investor in the space that has really tried to not just invest in businesses that are led by women and more diverse teams, but also in the structure of their fund and in the the venture partners that are involved in making decisions about those investments, they have a lot of diversity. So I think that there are some great examples in the sector, but you know, it, it is definitely very discouraging when there's not that representation in the makeup of those decision makers, especially at investment firms. So I think, you know, a lot of this, these trends that we're seeing hopefully start to translate into more action. And I think it's the responsibility of anyone who's working in an organization that's not very diverse to really think about why that is. Because I think a lot of us are realizing the biases that we have that we are not even aware of and, and you know, waking up to how that impacts what we do or how we communicate or how we make decisions is something that can be really powerful. And this is something I don't, I don't love talking about because it's sort of irrelevant to my business. You know, the fact that I'm a woman entrepreneur doesn't make me more or less able to grow insects. <laughs> and in some ways I would argue it actually makes me a much better entrepreneur. There's data showing that women-led businesses are less risky and have a better return. So there's, I would argue that actually it's a better investment, but in any case, you know, I do think that it, by nature of being a woman entrepreneur, you kind of have to speak to it at some point. And, you know, I've been very fortunate to have a lot of support in the growth of my business, which is great. But I think the ag tech sector is just like any other startup industry where there's a, a bias towards a certain group of people to the detriment of others. And I think that's something that, you know, we can all work to, to improve. And I think you know, there's data on how we look at different ventures in different ways. You know, I get so many risk-based questions, for example, whereas male entrepreneurs tend to get opportunity-based questions. And so by nature, you end up framing a woman-led business in a negative context when you th take it that way. So even though I'm proving I have plans A through Z and I've thought through all of these risks, which you think would be a positive conversation to have, it can frame the conversation for an investor who's trying to see the big opportunity and the growth in a way that can sometimes you know, create some hesitancy. So almost just by identifying what those risks are, they sort of bias themselves to thinking those things will come to pass. And so just having investors train themselves in how to recognize those unconscious biases, that's something that I think that the, the industry could really benefit from. Because growing indoor farming is a risky business inherently. There's all kinds of things that can go wrong. There's all kinds of things that will go wrong. 
it's, I think being a, a woman led business, we actually are better able to manage those uncertainties because I've almost been conditioned to, to think about and problem solve just by nature of the kinds of questions that I get. So again, I think it's actually probably a better investment to be thinking about how people with a more diverse perspective are solving these problems in a different way. I'm Latino. So the, the topic of diversity is always kind of top of mind for me and just something to be constantly aware of. And I think given the current climate we're in, I think people are forced to start having some uncomfortable conversations about where they are, inherent biases, and just educating ourselves into, you know, how things that we've taught or were not taught in school have affected our decisions and, you know, how we view other minorities and, and women, you know, just historically. So I think it's an important discussion to have, regardless of what industry we're talking about. And, and the fact that it's happening, I think is a really good thing. Yeah, well, and I think this is something, you know, you have a indoor farming podcast and interest. And I think it's really interesting that traditional food production, most of the food that is being produced in this country is produced by people of color, that we have a huge agricultural workforce that is not white. And I think that it's very interesting that the indoor farming sector is largely white. That being said, the labor, even at the, a lot of the operations are still, you know, we see a lot of people of color in the direct production of our food, but not necessarily in the leadership of our businesses that are producing that food. So, you know, we've been trying to create a culture where we can create avenues for of opportunity for people to advance into other roles in the business as much as possible. We're, we're trying to really think about and require Spanish speaking as a just a mandatory requirement for operations leadership at our business, because we know that that's very important for communicating with your workforce. And we want to be creating opportunity for people from, again, a diversity of backgrounds to excel in our business. And so I think the sector, the indoor farming sector does trend very white and male. And I think that's something that there's a lot of ways that we can address that. And I think that I'm very excited to see what happens in the next few months and years as the country sort of starts to address some of these systematic issues. Yeah. I've always remembered growing up in New York City, how there would be these programs that would take inner city youth and take them to like the rural farms and just show them like, because they would, you know, if not for those programs, they would never have the opportunity to just see that that exists and just, you know, see farm animals in real life. And I'm wondering if some of that, uh, there's also an opportunity for some of that in the indoor ag tech, you know, while you won't be petting cows and pigs, <laughs> there may be, I mean, I, I would venture to guess that there's a lot of inner city youth that will never have the ability to, to see what it's like to grow insects or, you know, or grow plants in, indoors. And, and that can be just as fascinating and also give them an, um, an awareness that there's other careers to, to look at and other opportunities to, to aspire to that they may not be aware of. Yeah. I mean, there's a real rural urban divide in our food production system, right? Like most of the eaters in our country live in urban environments, but most of the food production is rural. And so the real promise of indoor farming is that we can bring food production to where the people are and that we can make the transportation structure around our food, hopefully shorten those transportation and infrastructure lines. We can make the supply chain shorter. And I think that that's really the big opportunity with the kind of innovation that's happening in our sector is that it helps to bring food to where the people are and hopefully re-engage people in the production of their food. So, 
you can grow insects on your countertop and you could grow lettuce on your countertop, but it, it's certainly a little bit more difficult. <laughs> we actually are. We have <laughs> my, my girlfriend's big on plants and we, we've gotten this big planter with some uh, leafy greens. And Nice. Yeah. And I think, I think we're seeing, that's another interesting trend that's happening with more people staying home is they're re re-engaging with food production, with gardening, with thinking about how to harness the power of the sun to produce their food. And I think that our mission with insects as part of the animal food system is to, you know, instead of using things like fish meal, where we take all the smallest fish out of the ocean somewhere near Chile and then ship that over to a feed manufacturer in Norway and then send that back over here to a fish farm in Washington, we can be producing that feed from organic waste products right there next door to where the consumers of that product are. So shortening all of those supply chains and removing the reliance on these outdoor systems that are vulnerable to climate change and disruption. Climate change is going to be the major disruptor of our generation of the species and sort of direction of the planet. And I think that food production is really vulnerable right now to some of the impacts there. And so indoor production is a way to help mitigate against some of those risks. But we're definitely not seeing the kind of growth in the sector that we need to, given the kinds of trends that I think are going to be happening in more traditional production. Yeah, exciting, exciting times ahead, definitely. So speaking of looking forward, uh, you recently received funding from Wilbur Ellis, I think it was about $3 million. So can you tell me about the, the, the need to look for that funding and what the plans are and how you're looking to grow with, with that additional support? Yeah, so Wilbur Ellis is one of our investors and Nova Memphis is the other co-lead on that round. They're a rural investor that is excited about creating opportunity in rural environments and you know creating jobs and helping to stimulate rural economies. So very much what we do is in that realm. We're really excited to have that partnership of Wilbur Ellis Cavallo Ventures, which is their venture arm, because they are a really valuable player in the supply chain. They're a distributor of specialty feed and fertilizer products. And so they see and understand and talk to farmers across the supply chain, across sectors and markets. And so it, it's really allows us to find the best fit for what we do and for our products in that market. We've pursued investment for growing our business. You know, this is very much a venture scale opportunity. I think a lot of investors don't recognize how large the market is, how large the opportunity is, how rapidly we can grow and innovate and how much technology there is. You know, this is very much a technology rich industry and process, it is not easy to grow bugs and it is not easy to grow them at the scales that we are doing. So I think that people really underestimate how much technology is required. I mean, we've got six PhDs on our team and that's essential for us to be successful because there's a huge amount of biotechnology. It's a whole new crop we're developing. There's a huge amount of engineering technology to be able to do this at scale. I think one of the challenges in the investment world is that there's this expectation of a sort of software type growth in a business. But when you have a physical product, when you're a far you're a farmer, you're growing something, you're you have some natural constraints. And so that's something that we've really tried to find ways to break those constraints as much as possible. That's one of the reasons we have this operating model that we do, which has decoupled the 
production of the eggs at the hatchery from the production of the product. We're able to have a lot more flexibility and control over how we scale. And we've also been really thinking carefully about how can we reduce the capex because I think this is one of the challenges for the whole sector of indoor production is that it's expensive. And there's a lot of, you have to build a factory to scale your business. And so there's a lot of challenges around making that equipment, making all that infrastructure affordable. And that cost of capital is not often accounted for in the cost of production. And so this is why we've really emphasized a capital efficient approach to how we're producing. We could produce a from a standpoint of a greenfield operation with a new building every time we want to build something up, but there's a lot of underutilized infrastructure in this country. So we've taken a bit more of a brownfield approach to how we're thinking about production. And we also are really thinking about automation in a smart way. I think, again, there's a lot of, it's very sexy to pursue robotics and automation, but it's not always cost justified. So really looking at, okay, what's the return on that piece of equipment going to be? And maybe this could create a good job for someone instead of you know, paying a lot of money for that, that robot. So I think that that those are all elements, what we do and how we're thinking about the business that are making us a much more de-risk and more valuable investment, because, you know, we're being really intelligent and smart about that growth. I, I think that for the industry to be successful, and for companies to be successful, you need to have a plan beyond just subsidizing your growth with venture capital. I mean, we're seeing the collapse of a lot of those businesses that had these sky high unicorn valuations, and they've just been propped up by venture capital for that entire growth. So what we're trying to do is really get to a a profitable business as quickly as we can so that we can continue to scale and grow and, you know, be actually a real business that is making money and not just pursuing uh, investment round after round after round without actually getting to that point of uh, being successful commercially. I'm sure your investors are happy to hear that as well. (laughs) Yeah, it it is very interesting, though. You know, sometimes that's not a very popular statement to say that, you know, I I have no interest in raising $300 million of venture capital. And sometimes the venture capital model, really, they want to be investing more and more dollars into something. But, uh, you know, I think that what people sometimes forget is it's not a good investment if you don't have any kind of exit strategy, if you don't have a point at which you become profitable. So, you know, just investing in a way that your valuation keeps going up, but you're actually not producing something profitable. And again, it's about reinvesting in, in growth. I understand that piece of things, but reinvesting in growth in a smart way. If that growth is never going to become cost effective, then there's something broken about the business model. And I think we've seen this in a lot of discussions of, for example, Uber and some of these big giants that there's a lot of question around, can they actually make it make money with what they're doing? Yeah, exactly. What's a, what's a hard question you've had to ask yourself recently? Well, I think, you know, I've been, I've been talking to a lot of people about the growth of the business. I think I've been having to ask myself, you know, this is very much in this interview, you're asking a lot of great questions. And I feel like we're having a good dialogue. I've been asking myself how much I want to be sharing about my personal journey in the context of the business. But what I've come to realize is that investors and the people that are helping to scale this industry, they, they invest in people. And so I think that it's important that you are authentic with people and that you're really using that to, to motivate and drive what you do. I think 
I've really tried to think about ways that I can walk the talk. And speaking about, you know, some of these topics we've touched on is a way to help to make that real. So it's hard not to given, you know, this time that we're in, in the world to, to not be thinking more meaningfully about what is the kind of business and the culture that you want to be developing? And how can you use that to power what you do and to motivate the growth of the business? So I think those are sort of that intersection of personal and professional. I think everyone's facing that those considerations. And it's for me just really highlighted that this is what I really love and I want to be pursuing. And I have a real passion for the work that we do. And I really do believe that insects need to be part of the food system. That is not just a a hope, but I think really going to be a, I think it's a necessary development for the success of our food production. Well, Virginia, I really enjoyed our conversation. <laughs> it was a bit wide ranging and uh, I learned a lot and I know our listener learned a, a lot as well. So thank you for, for sharing and, and for opening up on some some uh, subjects that may, may have not have been directly related <laughs> to what you're doing with the business. But I think to your point, it just you know, humanizes what, what you're doing as a business owner and some of the challenges that you're facing as you as you look to grow and scale. Yeah, well, thank you for having an interest. You know, I think it's as an insect producer in the a sector that's dominated by plants, I think it's really exciting to talk about how we can be bringing other production systems indoors and helping to create a more stable food supply chain, thinking about creating. And again, when we talk about diversity, I think we need to talk about crop diversity as well, right? Like there's this huge emphasis on leafy greens, but there's only so much salad that Americans can eat. (laughs) (laughs) We need to think about other crops and how they can be part of the food system. And insects are a new crop that hasn't really been part of that before. So all of the breeding, all of the diet development, all of the technology to produce them, these are things we're working on because we need to have that diversity to you know, polyculture has a lot more yields than a monoculture. And so it's a really exciting time to be involved in farming. So where's the best place for folks to learn more about Beta Hatch and connect with you? Uh, we have a website, betahatch.com. We are just starting to get a little more active on some of the social media channels, but it hasn't been a, an emphasis for us because we're very much a B2B model, not a consumer facing business. And yeah, I am available. If you go on our website, you can shoot us an email if you want to connect. Virginia, founder of Beta Hatch, and would love to share more about what we do with your listeners. Thanks again for your time, Virginia. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Harry. I, I really enjoyed our conversation. So thanks again to Virginia for sharing her story. If you enjoyed this episode or past episodes, as a reminder, please leave us a rating and review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP. As always, special thanks to our season one sponsor, Intelligent Growth Solutions. Podcast production and marketing provided by Fullcast. If your company would like to understand how a podcast can help build your brand, sign up for a free call at fullcast.co forward slash chat one five. Make sure you tune in next week for my engaging conversation with Andrew Carter of Smallhold. Thanks again for joining us on this episode of the Vertical Farming Podcast. Here's to your health. Thanks for listening. To hear all past episodes and read the episode summaries, which includes any links mentioned in the episode, as well as a full show transcription, visit verticalfarmingpodcast.com. There you can sign up for our email list to be notified when new episodes are published.